Okay, so welcome everyone. Welcome to the NP studio. Uh, today we have with us another very special guest um, who is one of my favorite people. I've had some amazing conversations with him. Um, and just to give you a little bit of intro, um, so today we have with us uh, Mr. Diego Granados, um, who, so just to give, tell you a little bit about him, he um, he was working before uh, in business intelligence consulting with a startup called Factos. Um, after that, he transitioned to doing, uh, you know, a master's program in the Duke Fuqua School of Business, um, and then went on to doing some product management work at Cisco. Um, after that, he transitioned to Microsoft, where he serves as a senior product manager now, and he's been doing that for the past, um, I mean, he was a product manager since July 2019, and he's been transitioned uh, to a senior product manager in which capacity he serves the company now. Um, um, and uh, other than that, and, and also he's enrolled in a master's program at Georgia Tech currently. Uh, other than that, he runs a very successful YouTube channel for everyone who's interested in product management in any capacity in any company. I definitely recommend you check it out. Um, it's PM um, De uh, Diego Granitos, and it's super helpful and useful. So um, welcome, Diego. It's, it's great to have you here. Um, and I think just to kickstart the conversation, um, how are things at Microsoft? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It's a really a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for inviting me and for that introduction. Things at Microsoft are great. It's We are right in the middle of a planning season. And so from a PM perspective, it's a little bit chaotic, right? To try to align all the stakeholders, all our um, future investments. So uh, it's one of those times where you see all the PMs running all the time. Uh, trying to sort things out but in overall it's been a fantastic experience uh, thank you for asking and once again thank you for inviting me I'm super excited yeah, to be here that's awesome that's awesome um so actually you know i just wanted to take this time to a even learn more about pm as a general space because i think um, a lot of people are now aware about the more conventional you know software engineering fields and i think that is what they aspire to do when they're looking at not only big tech companies big tech companies but even startups uh pm is something which is probably not as popularly known as SWE, but at the same time, I think it drives a lot of value because, you know, I mean, I'm really passionate about it and I know that it, it allows you to be a jack of all trades and sort of like control or influence the way in which a product is built and shipped. So can you just throw a little bit light on, on the space in general and maybe like how, uh, what drove you into like even looking into PM in the first place? Yeah, absolutely. I think one of the things that happens with product management is that if you ask, 10 different product managers, what product management is, you're going to get 10 different answers. And it's it's one of those things that it's definitely not yet defined by the industry. And I don't even know if that's going to be possible one day. But in general, product management, it's a discipline that is broken into many different spaces, different shapes and form. But it's that role that sits in the middle of bringing all the other disciplines like engineering, design, um, the business side, like marketing, sales, finance, um, and depending on sometimes the technology, like in the case of AI, the data scientists. So you put this figure in the middle and bring all of these uh, different functions together to solve customer problems. Right. Creating products and features is, is the way that we solve these problems, but the PM is in charge of making sure that what are we solving? What's the problem? How are we solving it? The, the PM is not going to be the expert. That's why you bring together this group of people okay. and, and then making sure that we actually solve the problem, right? In, in a great way. Um, 
the, and, and like I said before, there are so many definitions of product management. And then you can start slicing and dicing depending on whether it's a startup, large company, you know, a, a customer facing product versus B2B and so many other nuances that we could talk about for hours about the difference between product managers. But that's that's yeah. kind of like an overview of PM, right? Like once again, sitting in the middle of all these functions to bring mm-hmm. products to life that will solve problems. Um, and you asked me about about me, right? And in what what um, why do I like product management and what drove me to this space? When I was in consulting, you mentioned my intro that I was in business intelligence consulting. I did that for five years, and one of the great things about consulting in general is that you get to experience different industries, different technologies, different types of customers. You learn from them. You you kind of frame a problem. You work with, in my case, different engineers to bring those problems uh, into your group and solve them and then give the solution to your customer, whether the solution is a product, a project, or simply a step-by-step guide after an analysis. You give it to your customer and then you move on to another problem and solve it and then move on to another problem and solve it. And that's kind of the repetition of consulting. It goes on and on. Mm-hmm. Uh, exactly. Which at the same time brings uh, something that I just didn't like, which was I wanted to see things go through, the projects uh, come to life, the solutions actually solving the problem. And that's what led me to um, understand different different uh, roles outside of consulting. And I realized that product management combined the best of both worlds. Right. working with multiple teams, working on on crafting solutions. And I didn't have to turn in the project and start all over again. I could actually see things come to life, releasing products into the market and just keep improving. So that's, for me, what drove me from my past in consulting into product management. Wow, that is uh, that is amazing. And thank you for uh, sort of like quite eloquently explaining what the field uh, also looks like. Um, I sort of like briefly wanted to touch upon this TED Talk that I recently watched. So it's uh, given by um, uh, this lady, her name is Amelia Wapnick, or Wapnick uh, and she is talking about how as humans, and I'm, I'm going to go off a tangent here a bit, uh, she's talking about how we are inherently something known as multi-potentialites. So how we inherently have this trait, this desire, which sometimes we listen to, sometimes we don't, uh, that is making us sort of like willing to combine or like, you know, connect different dots. So basically what a PM does, right? Be cross-functional inherently, work with different teams, obtain a sort of a leadership position and then sort of like get work done uh, by combining multiple skill sets across different categories, across different industries. Now I see product management as a sort of like a direct manifestation of being a multi-potentialite. Based on what I just told you, like, or based on what a multi-potentialite is and sort of like being cross-functional and being a jack of all trades, how, how effective do you think PM sort of like aligns with a thought? And do you think that more people have this ability than they might give themselves credit for? Like, do you think that it's quite underrated as a field or yeah, just wanted to know what your thoughts are on that and the connection with uh, us being a multi-potentialite, I guess. I believe that product managers have to be that person that is is understands very well that that the strengths that they bring are that you can bring people together right mm-hmm. we we talk about different skills in product management we we typically frame them as well you have to uh, think about uh, strategy and and vision setting roadmaps and uh, doing execution and, and all of those things um, and part of a big part of it is exactly what you mentioned right is bringing these people together doing cross collaboration doing team working being having these multiple 
um, we we typically hear it in in different videos or or we see it in books is you have to wear these multiple hats all the time because you have to communicate, understand, right. empathize not only with customers but with your teammates. So I do believe that it's it's something that all product managers should have. Now there's there's one one big thing that that is not always uh, talked about, but as you start hearing how product managers have to really interact with so many people, it starts to sound like, well, you have to be this extroverted person that it has yeah. to immediately go and, and talk to everyone and be happy and you know meet with every person every single day. When the reality is that being an extrovert or an introvert has absolutely nothing to do with this role. So I just wanted to make that clarification, but because I think a lot of people who are introverted, it's not my case, but a lot of people who are introverted think that they cannot be product managers because of that, right? Thinking about right. your question about the potential and, and being and being a product manager. So um, I do believe that, and I, by the way, I do know fantastic product managers who are introverts, but the point is that, yes, I do believe that product managers should be that person that brings all these skills together, that has different um, different skills that make them great collaborators, great team workers, and that know how to play the strengths of the rest of the group. Yes, that is um, that is great. Um, especially the fact that you said, and something that even I really learned right now, that you don't necessarily have to be an extrovert. You know, there's a stereotype that we associate with any position that's out there in the world. With product managers, I think that's true. The stereotype is that oh, he's he or she is someone who's charming. Um, you know, who is extremely extroverted and can g- communicate really well. I mean, communication definitely is the key thing, but uh, it hasn't. It doesn't have anything to do with the kind of personality you have. And I think that shouldn't be a barometer for people to decide who to take on as product managers or who to even work for as product managers. Um, that is, um, yeah, a really solid point. Um, I wanted to know, so, you know, when you're a product manager yourself, right? And in a large company like Microsoft, there's constant innovation change and all that's happening. But at the same time, there's a huge hierarchy, right? Because there's so many employees working in your company. Um, to what degree do you think accountability factors in into product management? Not only you being accountable to your sort of like peers or immediate, you know, underlings, but sort of like recipro- like them reciprocating it to you. Like, how do you cultivate that sense and culture of accountability when you're a product manager, however little you can, you know, within the company? The first thing in the recipe for success of, of a product manager is the company culture. Not every company will treat product management the same and not every company mm-hmm. certainly understands the role of a product manager. In the case of a company like Microsoft, and I'll talk about my experience, uh, and I'm sure many other uh, tech companies out there have a similar experience, there's a great culture where there's a big understanding that the the product manager is accountable for the entire product. And if it's successful, it's going to be a huge celebration of the team. Everybody is really excited. There's this big announcement. But when something fails, you're the first one they're going to ask questions about why did it fail? Why, you know, and it's not necessarily a, oh, here's a bad thing that you did is it failed. Maybe we're experimenting, but if not, could, could we have prevented this? And so the product manager is accountable for the entire product throughout the entire life cycle of the product. Mm-hmm. And it's not that you have this spoken relationship with others about, oh, hey, I'm accountable for this or I'm responsible for this and, and you are responsible for X, Y, and Z when you talk with engineers or designers or somebody else. The product manager is the one that is 
facilitating and enabling all these conversations and through your ability to demonstrate that a you know what you're talking about by b bringing data and and doing good research and uh, having a good understanding of the customers you're going to have that accountability of you know where you're leading the team and the team trusts you and you trust them on building the right thing so there's this kind of mutual trust because um one big thing about product management that, that we haven't mentioned so far is that you actually are not responsible in terms of hierarchy for almost anyone. It's it's mostly the product managers are what we call the individual contributors. It's it's hard for a PM to have um, somebody or be in charge of someone, right? Um, unless the hierarchy supports having you know PMs reporting to senior PMs or to lead PMs. Right. To become a manager in the product management space, it could take many, many, many years compared to other disciplines. Mm-hmm. Okay, um, that is also super interesting, um, and and I think it also provides a perfect segue to what I wanted to discuss and what's been on my mind even recently. You know, as even I'm going through this whole process, um, PM is something that even I'm like really passionate about, and. Um, for some people who, you know, when I initially describe it to them, it almost feels too good to be true because they're already so boggled down with like the one niche or the one area of depth that they have sort of like caught on that they feel that doing wearing multiple hats and getting the work done still in time is almost like, you know, it's like the job of a CEO. It's so hard and it's it still gets done. Um, so I want to know, and I think you're a man of structure. I've seen your videos, by the way. Again, I'm putting in a pitch out there. They're amazing. Uh, how do you approach a problem, Diego? Let's say a new problem comes up in, in X company, you know, not necessarily Microsoft, in whatever company you're working in. What is your initial thought process? Like, how do you start from scratch? Because I think a lot of people would love to know a little bit on the inside of how the PM process works from the get-go. I think when you're in school and you get a problem, uh, the first thing that you do is you go to the book, you go to the appendix, you um, look at the data, you go online and search for something, right? And you try to get as much information as you do. Product management is is not different in that sense. However, when somebody throws at you as a PM the 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 problem, a new problem, most likely is that there's not a lot of information, and you actually have to come up with that information. Right. And that's one of the biggest differences. And I throw that analogy because when I was in business school, every day we would read cases and and the case would tell you about a business. It will tell you, here's the data, go and do the analysis. And in product management, it's like, hey, here's this business, now go and figure it out. But there's no data, there's no appendix. Uh, mm-hmm. Just, just uh, <laughs> isn't, there's an no appendix. Like, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> so the thing is that uh, in my case, and, and I think in many, many PMs out there, when we are approached with a new problem is we try to understand as much as possible, whatever assumptions, whatever, even if it's just a little bit, whatever, any kind of data there is, uh, there's much more to a problem than simply um saying, hey, we have an idea for a business, let's go and do it. Especially a large organization like Microsoft, or I think of Google, Airbnb, Facebook, and any of these other big companies, there's um, a lot of things that you have to consider, like ecosystem play. How is how is this new idea going to play with the rest of our mm-hmm. products? Is there any other group working on it? Um, are there going to be any politics around this product? Um, what, is, what about the data? Which customers are asking for it? In which product? And so you have to start to think about all these other possible scenarios and try to get as much information as possible. So that's that's one thing, you know, just try to get information. Then once you have that information, then you have to start to put a business case together. You have to think about, okay, if we do this, 
what are our options? What's the avenue? Should we do A, B, or C? Or are there more options than that? And try to go one level deeper than that. Because in the end, unless you're working at a startup and you're their first PM and you report directly to the CEO, mm-hmm. most likely you have to get, to get buy-in from, from your boss and your boss's boss and go maybe up right. to three levels above, right? So how do you convince them? Well, you have to show them that it's worth to invest and it's it's sometimes about the money, sometimes about customers, sometimes about saving costs and you have to find that angle. So you have to put the business case. And once you have the approval and everybody's happy with it, then you start approaching the problem um, more holistic, meaning, all right, we know the customers, we know the problem, let's bring in the data, let's bring in the engineers, designers, and let's basically all hands on deck and try to solve the problem. I'm oversimplifying the steps a little bit, but this is just to give an idea is find the data, put the business case together, and then start working on the solution. And then after that, product life cycle until you have a nice solution to solve the customer problem, which by the way, just to make a clarification, we, we always talk about customer problem, but the customer doesn't have to be an external customer. You can be working in an internal project that will help, in my case, for example, Microsoft. So it could be an internal oh, project and my yep. customers are internal. Yep. Yeah. Actually, this reminds me of a reference. I was speaking with someone from Walmart the other day and they were working on uh, sort of a CRM software for, for Walmart. And I was like, um, mm, interesting. So aren't you going to service it to the customers? And they said, no, because we ourselves, we have like, I think, I don't know if I'm not like quoting the correct figure, but like almost like hundreds of thousands of people working for the company. So, you know, you can have a market within the company that you can service using right. a new product. And that is, um, yeah, that is underrated. Not a lot of people know that, but it's also something really fascinating and something that you can look forward to when you're building new products. Um, there is a good contrast of, of, from what you just said that makes me think, um, hmm, okay, so the larger a company gets, the lesser chance there is or the lesser probability there is of disruptive innovation. I was reading this book called The Innovator's Dilemma by Clayton Christensen from uh, Harvard, who taught at the Harvard Business School. And he was talking about the sweet spot between incumbent innovation, wherein large companies with a large market share try to keep pleasing the customers with what they offer and keep continuing offering that. And so there becomes a lesser scope for disruptive innovation where something totally out of the blue completely disrupts the space. And this happens in technology a lot in the technological fields um, and it takes on a new path itself. Um, do you think that the larger a company gets, the more corporate, the, the more corporately dense, I don't know if that's a word, but you know, you understand the picture, the, the more corporately dense it gets, the lesser space there is for disruptive innovation or like the moonshot ideas that you talk about in PM? What do you think is the correlation between that and the size of a company? I'll go back to to the company culture, right? Because if you have a company culture where innovation is is fostered and and people are provoked to actually think beyond their day-to-day work and and go and experiment and fail and, and do it fast, then you start to see companies like Amazon that I don't think, you know, many years ago, anybody expected that Amazon was going to start producing TV shows or that it was going to do groceries, right? And yet you have these huge, huge, massive company doing this disruptive innovations in the market. So I I don't think it's related to exactly the size of the company or or being, you know, in this large corporate world. I think it's more related to the culture. Um, And I'll throw another example. Sometimes 
we think about, well, but what about all these other startups, right? Are these startups going to disrupt the market enough for a company like Microsoft or Google or Cisco to be afraid of these startups? And what ends up happening many times is that if there's a company, a startup that is disrupting the market, it's not that these companies are suddenly going to be like, all right, you know what, let's let's uh, turn around the ship, let's go in that direction, let's do something even more innovative. Uh-huh. These companies will probably get bought. And if they get bought by a larger company, a couple of things could happen, right? It, the, the, a large company could buy a startup to extinguish the technology so that they don't use it, but nobody else use it. Right. They can buy it to actually expand the idea and grow it, or they can simply buy it and then just, you know, keep, make them keep, keep doing what they're doing and integrate with your services later. And that goes back to the strategy of the company and for internal products, it goes back to the culture. So I don't think it's related to the size of the company. I think it's more related to the culture. Yeah, uh, very well put, actually. Um, and culture is a common denominator for a lot of decisions that um, any company drives is also something that many people don't talk about because they think that it's this abstract thing which everyone talks about, you know, in a way, but is not really present. But I, I'm, I think I'm pretty confident that it is what connects people because I've seen even while applying to companies, there's so many tests that you have to go through which align, which have to align yourself with the principles of the company or the culture of the company. And that is, I think, a prerequisite um, more important than anything other, you know, any any other trait or skill that you have. Um, yeah, that's um, that's great. Um, I was also wondering, you know, considering the product management space um, that you've been in right now, and you know, because you've worked with a variety of teams and technologies, um, what do you think currently? When I say currently, not only in the twenty first century, but in twenty twenty one, in like post pandemic, where is the general technology space heading like where what are the industries that are really popping off and what do you think the next five to ten years because i think that's enough for something as volatile volatile as, as the field that we're in uh, how how are they going to look like according to you in terms of product especially that's that's such a big question it's so <laughs> big it's like asking in an interview something like um Using your hand, how many hands do you need to get from here to the sun? Wow. Go and estimate the value. <laughs> and the reason I right. say that is because uh-huh. um, it, uh, the reason I put it in such a, in such an extreme comparison is mm-hmm. is because of this. Um, as an example, I work in the AI and machine learning space at Microsoft. So I, you know, I could tell you about some of the cool things that I've seen, but I also work on the B2B space in the consumer data platform. So customers bringing data. So I know what's happening in that space. And I think there are some really cool innovations there. But if you ask someone who works in the consumer market for social media, then the answer will be very different, right? And so every single industry, every technology there's just going to be so, so many things that, that are going to be popping here and there of cool technologies. That's why I think it's a really, really hard, um, just a really, really hard question to answer as a whole and dictate that these are the cool things that are going to happen you know, in, in, in this year. Um, right. I can tell you, at least for, for my side, the things that I'm excited about is um, I'm getting more, and this is also partially because I'm very, really, it's very related to the work that I do, but I'm uh-huh. really interested to see 
how ethics is going to play in the future of automation of things. As an example, um, we've seen Tesla for you know many years, how they have their self-driving cars. And we hear a lot of noise around that. But the reality is that Tesla is not the only one doing this. Uh -huh. And when you start thinking about all these companies, all these car manufacturers are starting to go into that direction of self-driving cars, which has been around the market for many, many years now. But as we start getting closer to that point where, well, what if all of the cars are self-driving cars? Right. How is ethics going to play into this? So that's one area. Another area is uh, as we start moving into a cookie-less world and, and, and companies stop tracking us. And now every time I go to a website, sure. I get this very annoying message that says, how many cookies do you want to accept? And I always yep. click on no, 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 no. But then that means that on the other side, people that do marketing, people that do campaigns, how are they going to know who am I and where I'm coming from? And what are the things that I like or don't like, right? Yeah, and how to best offer me, yeah. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So, so then that starts to play into, all right, if they can't track me, then how are they going to use AI to solve the problem, if at all? And to that extent, then if they need to surface data from somewhere else, going back to ethics, is, is it ethical for them to source that data if I'm saying, no, don't track me? So as I was saying before, I think, your question is is too big, but I think it's a fantastic question because from every PM that you ask that works in a different area, they're going to give you different answers. Exactly. So for me, it's 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 around those spaces. Wow, um, actually a perfect um, transition as well to talking about something that I, I am also really looking forward to, um, especially about the ethics side, you know, um, and this even got shaved um, after I saw um, this really popular that uh, documentary on Netflix. It's called The Social Dilemma. I don't know if you've seen it, but it's really, really popular. And it basically goes on to say that for big companies, if they're not selling you any product, you are the product that they are selling. And that really sort of like took a toll on my mind because I realized that in a way, yes, like every time I, I use their services for free, I'm actually helping them because it's driving their revenues and providing them data. And then that really connects with the other thing that you were talking about is that going into this cookie-less world where even like in the new latest iOS update, um, whenever I download an app, right, on, on my iPhone, previously by default, I would just provide all my data to all the big companies. But now I get this sort of like the sweet alert stating that do you want, let's say, so-and-so company or so-and-so app to access all of your data and you can choose to not uh, provide them your data but then it's a, it's a barter right so it's a transactional relationship then you won't be getting that personalized feed do you think we'll ever be able to reach a sweet spot where we won't sort of like using technology that is and i'd be really interested in learning if there's any strides happening or any startups working in this space or even something going on in microsoft or anything but do you think we'll reach a sweet spot wherein we'll be able to achieve the best of both worlds wherein we won't be able to add, so we won't be able to get amazing content at the expense of our data like can we protect both um, do you think it'll be possible on on both the sides the difficult part about that is this. We want personalized content, right? Is right. when you think about a product, when you think about going into whatever applications you choose, you want some personalized content because you might not care about, I'm going to completely make this up, but maybe you don't care about, you know, trips to Hawaii. I'm just wild guessing here. Right. <laughs> and and if they keep showing you trips to Hawaii, you're going to start to lose interest in that because mm -hmm. it's just not interesting to you. But maybe for me, it is. 
but I'm not interested in bicycles and I keep seeing bicycles. That's right. And so at some point you're going to be so mad that the content is so irrelevant that you might leave the app. And I'm just talking about ads, but when I, when I talk about personalization, it goes actually beyond just advertisement. This, that's just a basic example to, to talk about personalization. Now, that being said, if I don't get a personalized experience, we're also part of this um, um, new era where we need gratification instantaneously. If I don't get what I need in the first five seconds, most likely I'm not going to return to that app, yeah. website, or whatever it is. So if I'm not getting an, a personalized experience in the next five, 10 seconds, they lose me as a customer. So interestingly enough, people are willing to give out their data as long as the content is relevant. So back to your question of, can we achieve this um, sort of nirvana where I don't give data, but at the same time, you know, I get a great product and the company is not charging me money. It's actually really hard. What I think should be, and this is just my personal opinion, but what I think there should be more investment on is not so much on let's protect, 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 protect uh, the, the customer data, because even at some point, I do want some some degree of personalization. But the problem is that Today, understanding what companies do with my data, how they use it, how do they source it, understanding when I download a new app or, so or install a new software, understanding what is happening with my data is so complicated. It's written by lawyers. It's not written for people yes. who consume the products. So as long as I don't understand, it's scary. And if it's scary, I'm going to say no. But if I know in a very easy, concise way, very user-friendly way, this is what's going to happen with my data, exactly where, how, who, everything about it in a very easy way to consume, then I might be more prone to say, all right, I understand it. Wow. You know, for this mm -hmm. app, okay, I'm willing to do it. For this other app, maybe not. So there were, there's, there has to be some trade-offs and there has to be a lot of research on this area. But I don't think it's, it's uh, I, don't, I don't think it has to get to that extreme where we absolutely protect um all of us from not doing anything. And I think it's more about the transparency and being able to consume that. Sorry, it was a long answer, but hopefully no, that gives I mean, Great, out. great. And I think I, I love this conversation, the way in which it's taking place. Um, especially the fact that you just mentioned, right? I think we have a startup idea right here. <laughs> Imagine like a platform that can simplify all the layered, lawyered stuff for you uh, and present it in, you know, in a very sort of structured format, in a simplistic format, stating that, hey, this is how we're going to use your data. This is how we're going to, you know, um, manifest for like different companies and like, you know, use it for different purposes. Um, and then if you're fine with it, go ahead. If not, then, you know, we can work with someone else. Um, there's, there's There are workarounds though. I mean, if you look at, there's a web browser are called Brave uh, as an alternative to Google, spun out of like I think ex Googlers, um, and also uh, there's a few companies that are, that are into data brokerage services. So basically, what they're saying is that hey, if you don't want to see ads and if you're boggled down by these irrelevant, uh, you know, just like. Um, noise basically you know on the internet uh, when you're using our service all you have to do is pay a monthly subscription on the other hand all these data brokerage platforms are giving you money in a way um, so you you are your own data broker right so whenever let's say a large company wants to access your data um, and when you click allow then that allows you to monetize the amount of time that you give them your data for and if, you know effectively rent it but the caveat to that is large companies don't want to pay you for that because they're anyways getting it for free so do you think that ethically and this is an ethical dilemma like do you think that customers should be focused upon more like given a choice would you like pay them for using their data or like would you 
keep the current status quo and have them at least explain it the way things work and then have them decide for themselves. Let, let me just let me just rephrase to make sure that I understand. Would uh-huh. I as a company pay consumers for their data or would I as a customer pay this service um, to, to, to block basically advertisements uh, right. for, for my experience? Right, no. So I, I was thinking about two things here, right? So there's option A in which so let's say your ultimate goal is to access someone's data, right? For a certain amount. As a company. As a company, as a company, yes. And right. then you want to provide some personalized content to them, which is going to make them stay longer on your platform and so on and so forth, which is what's happening right now. Most of the people do just submit, willingly submit the data and, and give the consent. But if there was a service that sort of like created this, you know, this wall of consent in a way, uh, which would prevent you from just directly accessing the data rather than you'd, you'd rather have to, you know, get in touch with the consumer, take their consent. And if they're willing to do that, then you might have to pay them. But at the same time, you get access to all of that data for as long as you want and then give them the personalized service. That's part mm-hmm. A. And then part B is, you know, you, you display the dialogue box to them. If they select no, then you eventually have the risk of losing them. Like, what would you rather, what would you pick? Because the, there are startups right. working in this space in both the sides. So I was just wondering what you think about that. Right. So let, let's pick an example. Um, what is Google business? Google's business is your data, right? Uh, our Correct. data. Correct. And what Google does is they take our data and then they sell in a marketplace to advertisers based on, let's take just google.com as an example. You input some keywords and based on those keywords, then Google sells SEO. to these uh, right. advertisers, um, you know, how much they want to pay to go at the top of the list for, for you as a consumer. Correct. So when you think of that and... When we think that that's Google's business, Google is is simply not going to say tomorrow, all right, because now we have to pay all users. We're going to change our business model, and boom, that's it. The Google.com you know business disappears. The marketing business disappears, right? Mm-hmm. Um, just like in other experiences, and I'll come back to Google. In other experiences that we've seen, where there's some new bill that raises telecommunication prices, or there's a new tax about. Um, something related to consuming, you know, uh, videos online from like Netflix and Hulu and all these. In the end, when they tax these companies, when they increase the prices of something for these companies, the price ends up going to us, the consumers. The our subscriptions right. for for these services go up. Correct. So in a similar way, I don't think that companies are already doing that. If they have to pay, the cost is going to go somewhere. They're not just going to absorb it. So either they're um, services go more more expensive for the, con- the regular consumers like us, or they simply are going to charge other companies. In this case, Google could charge more money for the advertisement um, for 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 their their partners. Their so one of the two take the hit, right? Yeah. And, and so they're going to take the hit, and and that's going to start you know to make a chain of then that increases the cost on their side and blah blah so on and so forth. But the point is that even if that happens. That's that market is not going to disappear. There will be other techniques because if we're thinking about you know a few years down the road, that also means that AI and all these improvements are also going to be uh, constantly improving over time. So then suddenly they didn't know anything about Diego, but because Diego logged into this website and we just know that that maybe Diego logged for the second time, then Diego may look like this other you know, group or these segments. So I'm going to categorize Diego without Diego explicitly telling me things about him. And so that also is going to start to be better and better and better on how we predict 
things about Diego. Um, and that's go, that's goes, that goes back to the cookie-less world that I was talking about, right? Without cookies that we're starting to get into is how do we do some, some of those tracking? And part of it is that, is thinking about based on Diego's journey, based on how the little things that I know about Diego, but the much information that I know about other customers, I'm going to profile Diego as one of, you know, belonging to one of these segments. So anyway, that that's my long answer to what I think it's going to start happening. And again, this is just a brainstorming out loud. Right. Um, but then your second question, remind me of your second question because I, I completely forget about it. <laughs> right, no, that, that's fine. Um, I mean, I, I'm going to pick up one point from this, which I really like, yeah. especially the fact like how, you know, uh, something we're forgetting is the inclusion of AI and ML and how that it's not like, um, it's not like a fluctuating development, right? It can only get better. The machine learning algorithm can only get better at understanding something. And so they won't even need that. But yeah, the the second part of this was just asking that, okay, it's either option A, which is what you just explained. Option B is where, um, you know, you, you stand the, like the current option where you stand the risk of if users don't select, mm-hmm. let's say if there right. was a startup, right? Like I just told you that if there was a startup which really disrupted the space, which said that, okay, what we're gonna do is we're gonna break it down so simply and, and give that information to all the users so that before they click yes or no for companies to access their data, they'll know exactly what's gonna happen with that data. Yeah. And let's say if that drives that decision to click no most of the times, you still stand a risk of like, you know, losing the customer because then you would, won't be able to provide that personalized feed. Do you think that companies will eventually find a workaround for that? And like, would that be ethically more considerate given the current scheme of things? Is it was the second part, you know, you can choose to. Yeah, I don't, I don't think that's going to, if anything, I don't think that's going to make a point. And, and here's where, where also the problem comes in. I don't think right. that, say, for example, Facebook, uh, right? I don't think that if you tell people, hey, here's how Facebook is going to use your data. And, and I call out Facebook because of all the problems they've had in the, in the recent years. But imagine that before all those problems, they, they, they tell you all of this, hey, here's what we're doing with your data. And people still want to use Facebook. So if there's no pressure from the people to actually make Facebook change their, their, their policies, this is, again, once again, thinking about a few years ago. Right. If there's no pressure from the people, and they still want to use Facebook because there's a social effect where you're using Facebook and I want to know what's up with you and I want to chat with you through Facebook, then I'm going to accept. Even if I'm not super happy about it, I'm still going to accept simply because of that social effect. So yeah. we have to take that into consideration. Hmm. But beyond that, then there's also the question of, am I as a company offering enough value to the customers so that they actually accept, right? Right. So there's yes. a social effect of there's peer pressure to joining a product or using a product. And then there's the, am I offering enough quality, enough value in my product for you to be willing to give me your data? Or C, am I offering you maybe a better tailored experience, customized experience to you if right. you give me your data, right? Because I could give you a basic platform and say, hey, if this is all you need, you don't want to tell me anything about you. That's fine. You're still going to find useful information. Right. If you give it to me, I'm going to you know, make this awesome, incredible experience. Let me make one, one example of, uh-huh. of this because it may sound ridiculous to say, what, well, what kind of personalized experience, right? So a few years ago, um, when, when video games in mobile apps, and all of this will hopefully make sense, video games in mobile apps were about hey, pay $5 and get this, you know, full game for free, whatever. Uh, right. now, now it's yours. 
um, well, not for free, but you pay and, and it's yours forever right. and ever. This right. is on the, on the mobile phone, right? So yeah, like this, is, this is on the mobile right. phone, right. mobile phone app storage. And then um, I believe it was Zynga or, or, or a company, I might be misquoting the, the, the company, but they came along and say, you know what? No, we are actually going to try something new. We're going to give you the game for free, but we're going to sell you things on top of the game. And mm-hmm. suddenly what started happening is that you would get you know, choose whatever random mobile game um, where you could buy costumes for your characters. You could oh, Clash of Clans, for instance. Uh-huh. Yeah, so Candy all Crush. of these. Mm-hmm. So can they, exactly, Candy Crush. And suddenly they started to make a ton of money um, out of this experience. And nobody thought oh. they were going to be successful. And now every single game, especially on mobile, has almost this... This premium yes. get it for free and i'll do it so what how what is this uh why is it this related to what i was talking about when you think about um these disruptions in the market it sometimes it's hard to think about well but what kind of personalized experience am i going to get what, what will be the benefit for me of giving them all my data and i don't have the answer but i'm sure that when uh this team who was going to do uh, charge money for for things like a costume in a game. I'm sure a lot of people told them like nobody's gonna buy that, nobody's gonna do that. So if companies start to find a great experience that for me it's gonna be customized, it's gonna be tailored to me, it's gonna be the best experience ever in that app, in that website, and all I have to do is give my data, which I've been doing by the way for Already, the past yes. n years, but now it's even better. Sure, keep using my data. Wow. But until I find that value, I might still say no. Yes. Um, <laughs> such a great example. Makes me think, it, it gave me so many thoughts while you're saying it. And it all sort of like falls perfectly uh, and makes a lot of sense. Like, you know how we always think about, oh, it's only disruptive innovation that's going to change things. But sometimes a simple repackaging of not only the product, but the market sort of like approach or the go-to-market strategy, like you said, with the games or maybe like how, what TikTok did to Instagram, you know, like just changing the UI UX, just changing, making a few minor tweaks, how how that can have a gargantuan effect on your reach to the customers and how they end up using your data. And then also a really good point that you made was about uh, the company also knowing its own value, right? Like today, like whether it's Microsoft with its OS or Google with its, you know, with the search product, like they, they've seeped themselves so much into our lives that even if they say that, okay, I'm going to charge you one cent for every time you use my service, most of us are going to do it because we can't imagine our lives without that. And so I think companies also need to understand their value from that sentiment uh, or that sentimental perspective that how far have they seeped themselves into a customer's right. viewpoint. And so, you know, they can actually pro- provide the data, you know, access that data, give them money, give, not give them money. Um, that is super interesting, which, and before wrapping up this really, really insightful conversation, which I've had the pleasure of having with you, Diego, I wanted to actually it was a two-part question so i'm never done with these <laughs> we can go for hours and hours but um so my first question is more on the technical side and the other is more like a general advice um so the first question i mean the first part is um you you dropped in a lot of ai and ml context right and i mean i've worked recently in the field i've seen how fastly you know how fast it's growing and developing and how obviously the rate at which it's progressing it's more so than what any of us as humans can do because obviously it's machines learning from themselves uh there's a 
large argument going on in the industry about you know this concept called general ai whereby um uh, some people like you know elon musk is i think he's against that and mark zuckerberg is for that and the the whole spiel that goes on wherein they're saying that you know eventually there'll come a time with the rate of progress where an ai will be able to have unsupervised learning it'll be able to code itself and so it'll be able to not only get the best of all worlds but it can also have the capacity to destroy like you know how we see in the movies what the a so my first part a is what do you feel about generally as a concept and then part b i think just before ending just any advice for people who want to get into the product management space um what to pursue what to look for when they are in school because i think a lot of people don't know more about the space they know more about the traditional spaces when they're in college or in high school so i think that those are the two the bipart question i always i have always always loved jurassic park but if you ask me would you like uh scientists to bring dinosaurs back to life probably not <laughs> and right. I, i think sometimes some of these concepts are really cool and when you think about them you know we start thinking about oh you know terminator and matrix and all of these you know cool things i think for to me i think there's just so much that we still need to understand ourselves about the basics of artificial intelligence that putting a computer to learn and and code and and program on its own by themselves learning about their own things i'm not saying it's not something we should do i just think it's something that we're still way too far to really comprehend um beyond how to code something like that um i think there's been a lot of terrible ai experiments that have happened in the past from some uh -huh. of these big companies one example from from microsoft is the chatbot they released into twitter that was going to learn from know about that yes. from what people right people would uh -huh. say and it became like this racist um nazi uh like horrible ai that had to be shut down a few days later mm -hmm. and and so i just bring that ex that example to say that i i think there's still a lot that we still need to understand before we can even think about let let's do a uh, you know some artificial intelligence that does whatever it wants to itself to to itself i'm i'm oversimplifying the term but that that's kind of the uh, where i'm getting at gotcha. so anyway that that that's that's what i think like i said i'm not against it but i just think that it's still some there's just so much that we need to understand before we get right. to that point where yeah. it can actually be um you know as a safe space to play and and just to add one last piece there and then I'll address your second question we also have to think that technology moves incredibly fast but regulations legislations ethics it doesn't move as fast and that's why we see yes, people like mark zuckerberg all the time having to be uh you know declaring what happened and 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 basically <laughs> being accountable for all of these things because regulations and ethics don't evolve as fast they're they're very complicated problems to solve so i feel there's a lot that needs to be worked on that before we start thinking about um a space like this but anyway that that's my answer to your first question uh and the second question i think one of the biggest big misconceptions is that you need to be a software engineer or a data scientist to get into the pm world in general and then into the pm and ai world right um So I'll address the AI world because you're right. I think a lot of people hear about PM, but not so much about the AI PM world. Yeah. So 
my advice to anybody who's listening and who wants to get into the AI PM space, um, well, besides the PM side, go to my YouTube channel. I have all the resources for you. On the AI side, there's a fantastic website. I might be mispronouncing its name, but it's either called Kaggle or Kaggle is K-A-W-G. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Perfect. Yeah, Kaggle.com. Mm-hmm. And it's basically a website where it's about data science competitions. So you have a data set that a company would put out there and then they give you a set of instructions like this is what we're trying to, to, to you know, improve or save or whatever the objective is. And then you submit your results using machine learning models. They have a fantastic free tutorial from the basics of Python all the way to building your first machine learning models. Okay. Just like software engineers build their own portfolio in GitHub and show their work over there, you're going to do the same for a product manager. You're going to put your portfolio in these notebooks. That, that, that's the way that it's called for, for data science projects. Uh, you're going to put your, all your notebooks, your projects in, in this website and give it a PM spin, right? Because as a product manager, you want to show... Not only that you know, yes, how machine learning works, actually machine learning, coding uh, an algorithm, a decision tree is going to take you four lines of code, but understanding what's behind it, understanding all the work that had to be done before the data and all the work that happens afterwards, which is the the hyperparameter tuning and interpreting the results. That's the work that you want to show. And then bringing it into the PM world, meaning you understood that there's a business need. You understood that there's a problem to solve. You solve it through AI, even if it's something very simple, but you solve it through AI and you understood the process. That's what's going to make the difference. That's what's going to set you apart from the rest who don't have experience in AI. Wow. Um, This is fantastic. Uh, Lots to take away from this conversation. Um, And I really wanted to thank you, Diego, for taking out the time to do this. Um, And you guys, after listening to this conversation, I hope you have uh, some proclivity or inclination to pursue PM. Uh, Please, again, do check out Diego's YouTube channel where he talks about PM, not only uh, relating to Microsoft, but also other companies. And you stay tuned uh, for the next episode um, in the NP podcast. Have a good one, guys.